Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And we are working through Systematic Theology 3, still the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Last time we talked about the conviction uh, and the Holy Spirit, uh, namely that one of the jobs of the Spirit in the unbelieving world is to bring an objective judicial conviction of guilt. And so we spent our time looking at John 16, 8 through 11, and we saw there that the Spirit will bring conviction concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so check that one out if you didn't get a chance to listen to it. Uh, And today we plan to talk about the ministries of the Spirit within the church. Now, I kind of screwed up here a little bit because we were supposed to do the role of the Spirit in the unbelieving world, then as a believer becomes a believer. <gasps> You're then, right. We even advertise that. Yeah. Well, that, there's that, a reason. Is that a this. sin? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, you're a man of your word. Are you a man of integrity or? Never mind. Go ahead. Well, I, uh, <laughs> so I, so essentially what I do on that one is John three. And oh, oh yeah. We were going to knock down and have a fight. Yeah, do the uh, the whole John three debate. What does uh, the water uh, mean in John? Born 3? of water and, and spirit. Of the spirit. Well, so when I taught my Greek class, I actually did that as one of my opening devotionals for one of the classes, and I walked through all the views and stuff. So I was trying to find this thing, and it's like lost. It's not on my computer anywhere. I go downstairs and start ripping through my cabinets. It's nowhere down there, and so now I have to rewrite it. So, so we're doing this. So we're doing this one. <laughs> so maybe next time. You, you know, and, and if you have to rewrite it, you might re-exegete. And if you re-exegete, you might come to conclude that I'm correct. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> you don't sound real. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> okay. So, so we are just going to talk about the ministries of the Spirit in the lives of Christians. Or you could just simply say the role of the Holy Spirit within the church. And there are eight primary categories And so we're going to walk through all eight of those. And so the first one here is the Holy Spirit uh, is a guarantee or a down payment or the first fruits or the seal of God's work in your life. These are all just different ways um, the Bible talks about it. And what is important to understand here is that this is an objective reality. This isn't something subjective, something you feel. um, Rather, when you become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and by that fact, that is the objective guarantee of your salvation. So your point is, even if you don't feel saved, if you are in fact in Christ, nonetheless, objectively, these are true. Correct. Even though at times you may have fear, doubt, questions. Yeah, absolutely. Or as that old hymn says, prone to wander. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But... He's still your seal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So we get this from Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, which says, In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
having also believed, you were sealed in him, meaning Christ, how with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Or Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So is this the passage you referred to when I, I earlier podcast we had talked about we're very safe in the hands of Christ. Yeah. And then I said, and and then he, we are also held in the grasp of the Father, so we're doubly safe. And you said, actually, we're triply safe because we're also kept by the Spirit. You're sealed by Him. And yeah. that's this one, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so you're thrice I, I never heard that, actually. That yeah. was the first time in all my years, and I thought that was a neat one. See what happens when... Do you I, pay attention to you? Yeah. I sit at your feet. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, so the scriptures are clear uh, that God will complete the work that he begins in our life. We see this in Philippians 1.6, for instance, that famous passage. And uh, the Holy Spirit is the objective guarantee of that ongoing work, but also the guarantee that God will indeed finish that work that he himself has promised. Uh, so Romans 8.23 is also a good passage, which says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, the first fruits is a phrase you'll see throughout Scripture, and it's a re reference to Israel and how they were to give the first fruits of their harvest to the Lord. And it was simply a way for them to show their devotion to him. If they gave their first fruits, the promise is that God would abundantly supply them then with their needs. And so in a similar way, God giving us his Holy Spirit is his way of displaying his devotion to us to complete that promised work. And it's a wonderful verse because it's not that we're the ones needing to give the first fruits like Israel had to. Right. But here it's God who gives the first fruits. He gives us the spirit, which also means that he will give us everything else required to save us. Well, and that was the promise built into that because on a human level, giving your first fruits was an act of faith. Right. Right. I mean, you yeah. were trusting. I mean, it's like, no, get, I get give something. You my first. The, yeah. Yeah. I want to get that <laughs> in the barn yeah. and, and then be safe. But no, you're going to give it to him, so you're trusting him. But the also is the promise is that when Israel would give their first fruits, he promised, I will abundantly supply your, your harvest. So now God is giving that, and just like you said, he's now he's promising that here's the first fruits. Here's what you get to show that I'm serious, that I will bring you all the way safe to the end, which is good when you're in a state of great fear. Yeah. And, and it also communicates that he is doing all of it from yeah. beginning to end. Yeah. So now that's the objective. I mean, whether you feel like it or not, whether you believe it or not, or understand it or not, these things are happening. On the other side, there is a subjective side, and that is the next one, that the Holy Spirit gives believers assurance of salvation. Now, this is not the same thing. Um, so here it's a subjective reality. So yeah, passages like Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, or 1 John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in him, him being Christ, and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. 
So those two are, are, are examples of this inner subjective confidence that we belong to God forever. Uh, it's a gift. It is a privilege for all genuine Christians, but it's also important to understand that it is a privilege, but it's not necessarily something that people always experience. It's not always right. an objective reality. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a pastor for any length of time, you run into people, plus you yourself can go through these, uh, uh, where you lack assurance of salvation. Um, so we're going to just shoot out a few ways that you can do that. Um, First of all, you can lack assurance of salvation due to no teaching or simply bad teaching on key passages regarding Christian, a Christian's absolute eternal security in Christ. So a couple of longer passages that I'll read from you, but what we want you to pay attention to is what is actually stated there. And if you don't really grasp those or, you, or you're not... Um, believing them as you ought, um, you, you doubt God's right. veracity, his faithfulness, stuff like that, um, then these are just words. But hopefully they'll be encouraged. In Romans 8, 35 to 39, the rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are con we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Why? For I am convinced that neither life nor de uh, death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that passage I love. Who doesn't? But I actually use that one fairly effectively with a Lutheran brother um, that I had been working with for years, and he kept saying, we can separate ourselves. We can lose our salvation, simple Lutheran doctrine. And I said, look at the list and show me where you're the exception. I said, you, you're the created thing. You're present. You're, yeah. you're, I mean, there, there's no way to get around that. He is literally surrounding you with the reality that none of these things can separate you. And it, it helped him. It helped him begin. It, it was one of those major chunks that I cut away from his belief system that helped him begin to realize that he was more safe than he realized. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that yeah. was neat to watch. And then another passage is 1 Peter 5, 1. Um, who according to God's great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now he switches from the inheritance to the person, you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last uh, time. So that's, that's one common way. It's just bad teaching, or you don't know these things. Another one would be satanic attack, sure. right? You just yeah. um, He's just assaulting you with doubts and questions. We get into that. We talked about that in our Satanology, about how he, he uses deception, false teaching, accusation, things like this that can really break a person down. Um, a lack of sharing the gospel, that's a weird one. But you got a story coming up that will kind of illustrate that, that I thought was really good. So just keep that in your mind, uh, listener. 
physical pain, difficulties, simply because you live in a fallen world and, and it starts to cause you to doubt God's love. Um, and that goes back to the bad teaching. Right. Right. Because yeah. you, you, you're, be, you're always talking about victorious, triumphalistic living and that God's there and he's going to fight your battle, blah, blah, blah. And then you're sitting there afflicted with MS and you're like, I'm, I'm not seeing it. Sure. So um, you have to understand how God chastens and disciplines his children for the pers- purpose of perseverance. That's what Hebrews 12 talks about. Um, sometimes we think that all pain is bad when in reality it may be the very evidence of God's love. Uh, though very painful. Um, I'm going to let you, though, share that lack of sharing the gospel. Yeah, I don't know why I put it down. I I got mixed up. But um, yeah, another one could just be a lack of sharing the gospel or lack of being just a faithful witness for Christ. And just a quick thing that I thought about was an experience that I had when I was in seminary. And and you know how it is because you went through seminary, but you get <laughs> and work full time on a church staff. So I didn't even know what a non Christian looked like. <laughs> right, right. Well, and then when you're in seminary, you know, you're just you're you're tired, you're busy, but you're memorizing Hebrew verbs, and you just get stuck in this little bubble of academia um, that can be completely divorced from the reality of the world and life, and you forget why you're there sometimes. Um, but for me, I, there was, you know, I went through somewhat of a dark season during seminary. And I remember one day just uh, sitting in a local restaurant with a brother in Christ, and we were talking, and we had the opportunity to interact with someone, and I gave him the gospel, um, which I hadn't done in a long time. And um, when I got done with that, I remember walking outside, and it was just like a, like, energy coursing through me and fresh of breath air. Why? Because I was forced to articulate that which I believed and that which was my hope. And so because of that, all of a sudden I had this great assurance again in Christ. And it, it just reminded me of the early days of coming to Christ and what yeah, that it original it takes joy was. back to the beginning, right? Yeah. And, and so when I think that's part of God's design when you're forced to articulate that basic truth of the gospel, especially in the face of someone opposing it. Um, you're, you're reaffirming that which is true and that which you believe. And so I do think it's part of God's design for assurance. Um, so okay, that's my story. Well, yeah, but it's a good story. And it's actually why I was thankful that I became a jail chaplain while I was in seminary, yeah. because it's the only way I could get around unbelievers and they were quite yeah. unbeliever. <laughs> well, and so when people do doubt or lack assurance, one of my first questions to them, apart from what sin are you involved with right now, is when's the last time you gave the gospel to someone where you actually articulated the gospel, not to someone who knows it, not just to, you know, fellowship with someone who's in the church or something, but an, an actual unbeliever who does not believe these things. And in the face of that, you gave them the gospel and I think you'll find you'll have this wonderful assurance come over sure. you, wash over you. Well, then the, w- one of the other things that we do find as a common cause of a lack of assurance is just guilt of sin, which is what you said, you know, what sin are you <laughs> holding on to? It might be a lifestyle of sin. Um, and God can really pull back assurance to draw us back to him. Um, so First John 3, 24 says, and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. So a life of obedience brings you into that intimate fellowship and he and, and, and God to, them, to him. And we know this, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So 
there is that it's actually a gracious work of the spirit um, to bring us this subjective assurance, but only as we're in obedience to right. the commands. So uh, it's also a gracious work that he withdraws that joy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in some ways it will confirm whether the spirit was within you is that if you continue down, ultimately you'll just go into apostasy right. um, or at some point, You'll come into the discipline mm-hmm. and and be brought back. So it's it's very possible, beloved, uh, for a true Christian to walk around with an incredible amount of guilt um, because they truly possess the Spirit of God, but they're actively remaining in sin, and so they almost get like a schizophrenic attitude at, at times. <laughs> it's they're true. Like, they're all over the map, and we again we've seen them, we've counseled them, we've been there. Um, they're trapped in their sin. They hate it. And so this can cause, be a cause for a, a very miserable life as a Christian. But it's by design. It's actually God's grace. In fact, I think you were there where I, I was confronting one brother in sin and just talking about how the fact that he got caught is an evidence of God's grace. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wasn't feeling it. <laughs> sure. yeah. He was feeling really guilty and caught. Um, but we saw it as, you know, Praise God that it came out and we can address it and we can grow out of that. Um, as a Christian, though, choose a sin over obedience, they're going to wonder if they're even saved. And they ought to. They really ought to. Uh, that lack of subjective feeling of assurance. And I think that's unwise for Christians to then try to placate them and say, no, no, no. No, actually, Paul would say, if indeed you have believed these things, you know, um, and that's where a person has to make up their mind of what they believe. A true Christian will eventually choose obedience, though it may be a long period of time uh, before that actually comes about. But until that time, they will lack assurance. They will doubt God's love. They'll wonder if they're even saved. They'll even have thoughts uh, perhaps of just giving up and unfollowing Christ altogether. And it's simply due to their guilt of choosing sin instead of obedience but when they do eventually come out of that sin and choose uh, obedience, it's am- amazing how much of that assurance that, again, the subjective just floods them. Yeah. Uh, they have an incredible joy as they just lay aside something that it needs to go away. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm in my mind, I won't get into it, but I'm just remembering things in my own life where it's like there just came that day where it's like, you know, it has to go away. Yeah. You know, I've, I've rationalized it every possible <laughs> way, and it needs to go away. Yes. Yeah, you know. You know when you're in sin and you need to put it away. Um, we, we, well, we would also add, though, that in light of that First John 3, 24 passage, that a true Christian will, will, will lack assurance in times of obedience. Um, because the key word there is the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Um, and because of that keeping of the commandments, we know by this. So that no, that's a sub- subjective assurance. And then what is the by this? Well, that's in reference to the keeping of those commands. So we'll know that he abides in us. And again, it's a work of the spirit. This is w- one of the things that bugs me. I see on Twitter, Facebook, and other places, but those are the places most easily seen, how people get really... Um, they're like, I think you're preaching legalism. It's like, have you read your Bible? Right. You know, at some point, faith produces works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's in the, it's in the Bible. <laughs> well, yeah. 
Uh, well, a lot of thoughts there that I'm just filtering. Um, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're both got stories we'd like to share that you won't hear. We both keep opening our mouths and then closing them. <laughs> yeah, and- if you were actually, we had a we had a dude like Rush Limbaugh. We had should have a paid ditto cam, but we could call it the Fable cam. <laughs> I'm sure that would be a hot item. Yeah, you talk with our former nicotine-stained fingers. Yeah, while well, I'm desperately trying to keep my cigar lit. Yeah, so uh, anyway. Uh, so, um, yeah, based on that passage, though, a true Christian will lack assurance in times of disobedience. And I would say that, in fact, it is when a person claims Christ, knowingly lives in sin, and then has zero doubt over their salvation, I would say that, a pastor at that point should become very concerned. Yeah. Uh, because one of the marks or evidence that a person truly possesses the Spirit of God, again, according to this verse, is that they begin to lack assurance in times of disobedience. And so one of the worst things, and you mentioned this, that a person or a pastor or a fellow Christian can do is help minimize that convicting work. Um, and so I would say we should let the Spirit's conviction do its work in the life of that sinning believer and not be quick to minimize it by reminding them that, you know, it's just all under the blood or just remember the gospel um, or something like that. Um, And so they should just have much confidence and ignore that lack of assurance. Uh, Rather, the lack of assurance is one of God's tools to keep a true Christian faithfully persevering. Yeah, and then another huge one um, is a lack of love for the brethren. Uh, First John is just loaded with this whole theme, right? I mean, it's all designed to let you know that you have eternal life. So in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love, meaning the brethren, abides in death. That's stunning. Strong phrase. Um, This is why we can say that when you don't want to, I mean, this coronavirus, I think is going to have a winnowing effect that way. Would you agree? Absolutely. I I think a lot of people are finding it's actually nice not having to go to church and they're not missing it. And I think some started out by watching the videos and stuff like that, but others uh, throughout, I'm talking in the greater church, they're just finding, if I get around to it, nothing else, because their heart's actually not there. I think the the guilt kept them going, but now that they've not had to do that, that conscience or that guilt has sort of faded away. It'll be very interesting what happens when everything gets lifted, if they ever do. and some of these churches that have been preaching a very vague gospel, it's there, but you know that um, how many of the people will return? It's weird because our church has grown, um, mm-hmm. and and that we've seen it by people who just want to gather together to hear the word, and and fellowship with other people. They want to sing. They want to talk. Yeah, which according to this verse is great evidence of the Spirit. Yes, and it should encourage them. So there are so many passages we could point to in First John, but it, it, it's no wonder that many who keep the church, therefore at arm's length, wrestle with assurance in their own salvation. And I give them no sympathy as a pastor. Um, people think I'm sometimes harsh, but it's like you're doing everything that you can in your power to not have assurance. Um, it's simply part of what God's designed. Um, that the one who loves the brethren will have that subjective assurance in their salvation as they gather. So if a Christian refuses to faithfully engage in the realm in which the Spirit dwells, I like the way you wrote that. Yeah. I mean, he dwells with, well, it gets into our idea that the corporate right. is more important than the individual. Um, and that the the Spirit, it's not so much he's dwelling in the individual Christian, though he is, but the emphasis by 
in the Bible is that he's dwelling in his church. His church, yeah. And so when you refuse to gather with the place where the Spirit is dwelling, (laughs) then you shouldn't wonder if you lack assurance from that same Spirit. Who gives that assurance. Yes, yes. In fact, um, I, I was thinking of a sermon, man, I did this 20 years ago in 1 Peter, but that we're being built together as living stones. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a Spurgeon quote, but he just talked about, it's the difference of you're vitally connected through the spirit to Christ when you're being built up together as these living stones, you're you're connected to one another and the mortar that holds it together is the spirit. He said, you would never consider a brick laying in a pile of rubble as being part of that building. Right. And I'm like, that's actually huh. a good picture. Yeah, it's, good. Yeah, it's got the brick, it's got all the appearance, but it's not actually connected to the building. It's it doesn't belong. And only when it's set into the building does it have its purpose. And I'm like, dude, that was a really good illustration Spurgeon came up <laughs> with. Um, but it it uh, it helps me think about that. And so when you see those guys who are always on the edges and they they come in late, they leave early. They're there two weeks, gone four weeks, blah, blah, blah. And and they they struggle. It's no wonder. They're not vitally connected to that life-giving power that the Spirit does. Not just insurance, but also all that sanctifying work, right, right. which is the next thing. Yeah. So the third thing we would say is the Holy Spirit brings about sanctification. Uh, so 1 Peter 1, 2 is a good verse. Um it starts in verse one that Peter's writing to those who are in what's called the diaspora, the diaspora, those who have been spread out due to suffering. And so he's writing to these people who, verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. By the way, that you see the strong presence of the Trinity there. They, they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. <coughs> And that it's the purpose idea. So we're set apart by the Spirit's work of regeneration. I mean, it's so full. I think when I preached this, it was three sermons. (laughs) I I preached about what the foreknowledge of God was, what the sanctifying or the regenerating work of the Spirit is, and and the purpose of of obeying Christ. Yeah. 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 Well, and... And then, yeah, that's good. And then for our purposes, though, it's this, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So the Spirit sanctifies us. And so the, the, the Spirit is the primary divine agent. So if we're going to talk about um, ontology versus economy, um, one of the economic functions of the Spirit is to sanctify. So the Spirit is the primary divine agent in the Godhead who brings about that process of maturation in the Christian's life. And so he causes us to be less oriented towards self and more oriented, as Peter says here, toward Jesus Christ and his will. And this is an ongoing, progressive maturation process that takes place until the point of death. In, and I, I want to build on that real quickly. It's not in the, our notes, but that sanctifying work is that where he sets you apart. That's the idea of that sanctifying that begins then the progressive sanctifying. Right. So I'm going to rip off Hebrews 12, where he says that we are to run the race that's set before us. Um, But how the heck did we get on the race course? (laughs) The Spirit. (laughs) spirit. So the Spirit takes you off of the broad path. Now I'm in Matthew. (laughs) I'm all over. So we're happily wandering down with everyone else, the the broad path that leads to destruction. By God's grace, because of the foreknowledge of the Father, 
at the right time, the, the spirit regenerates us, takes us off the path, puts us on a whole different path. And that path is a sanctifying path, right? Yeah, right. So now we're in the process of, of growing in it, but it all starts because we got set apart, which is that monergist, moner, oh, I can't Moner, Yeah. Monergistic. Monergistic. Yes. Synergistic. Which is yeah. the next thing that you're going to yeah. talk about. So, and then the, the fancy words for what you're saying is there's, there's punctiliar sanctification, yes. which is that, that moment in time where he takes you off that old path, puts you on the new one. And then now on that new one, uh, you're now in this process of progressive. So punctiliar yeah. and progressive sanctification. Um, another passage is second Corinthians three eighteen. Uh, Paul writes, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, meaning the image of Christ from glory to glory, which just means a little by little. And, and how, well, this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Uh, so, so this tells us clearly that there is now also a human agent in sanctification, that synergistic process. Right. Um, and, and this comes through faith, obedience, community, prayer, uh, all these great things that we talk much about. So that, that was a fun section. Um, next one. <laughs> so you're trying to correct. <laughs> no, I want to have a typo here. Yeah. Yeah. Typo. Oh, but okay. That's not it. I was actually my, I was fixing the typo while my mind was running. And it's like, we could just keep going on that. Cause yeah. I think that's where most people are at and they don't really understand how much of the grace of God is just abiding on them as the spirit just keeps moving them down the path. And, um, and, and they're, I mean, I'm thinking of pilgrim's progress and yeah, he yeah. ends up over in the castle of despair and he's over here and he's over there, but he keeps moving in there's, this there's direction. direction yeah. There's something happening there. And that's just the grace of God doing that. But, uh, there's also that cooperative aspect. You need to submit, you need to obey, you need to grow. So another one would be the Holy Spirit is active in what we're going to call missional endeavors. So in Acts 1.8, but you shall, this is Christ talking to the apostles, uh, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so here we're seeing that they're not going to go out and impact the world with the gospel until the spirit empowers them. And that's what he does. He's active in the evangelism, the pursuit of missions. And so it, we would say that it's the spirit that gives us a desire and a will. Uh, he, he will often prompt us in our missional endeavors. We may choose to disobey, sure. which is that lack. Then we start to wonder, am I ashamed of him? I'm, but, but there's that prompting. He will guide us in our actions. And there, here's a long one that's actually helpful out of Acts 16. So verses 6 through 15. Oh, man, I was hoping to dump these words off on you. Um, okay. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden. That's a fascinating passage. Yeah. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
therefore putting out the, uh, putting out the sea from Troas. We ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. These he, They're looking for Jews. Right, right. Um, in fact, if I remember your teaching on this passage, it was that there was not, what, what's the term, do you remember uh, the term for if you have a quorum of males, Jewish uh, males? I don't remember, but you needed a certain amount of Jewish males, which means you needed a certain amount of... Yeah, a quorum, by, basically. Yeah. And if you can't, then you can have a synagogue. Right. But if you don't have that, then there would still be a place that would gather to pray. I want to say it was eight, eight to 12 Jewish males. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. Something okay. Like but I don't remember the term. And but. the point is that there weren't enough of them. Yeah. Um, and so where are we at now? Um, to a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And that's why the women were there, because there weren't enough men, but the women were still gathering to worship. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So long passage, but it's we see the Spirit preventing or actually forbidding the gospel to go into certain places. Now, how this worked out itself, the scriptures simply don't say. But the Spirit essentially says, not here, not now, which is shocking because people are living and dying. Right. And it, this is a major passage when you say, well, he wants everyone to get saved. And it's like, yeah, not there. Yeah. <laughs> um, some people had to yeah. die, right. and they had to die in their sin. Um Instead, what we have is the Spirit evidently desired Lydia to be brought to salvation. And so these missionaries of the gospel traveled 400 miles before they were able to see a convert. And this is from the work that the church at Philippi was then born, which is really a cool story. Yeah. Um, you, you've seen that in Milwaukee. I mean, our, well, our efforts to plant yeah, a church. Yeah, well, um, so, so you're in Kenosha here, and we wanted to plant out a church. And so we... Didn't know where that where that would be, how it would look, and who would be involved. Well, we had a member of our church who was living down in Illinois, and it seemed like there were some people naturally gathering there. And so we're like, all right, well, let's let's try doing Illinois. And so we put together a Bible study, and that lasted what three weeks, four weeks, maybe. I I I don't even know if it was three. Yeah, maybe three. Well, let's say three. Okay. So, but but we sat down as as leadership and said, all right, we're gonna we're gonna make formal steps now to go forward and plant a church. So we we tried going down there, and we had a wonderful family who was hosting it, who would kind of be the center for that. And then through providence, he had to move away and all that. And then, I mean, that whole thing just shut down so fast. Yeah, it was shocking how fast. Yeah, and there was a there were like two weeks of discouragement because it's like. Man, we're trying. Does he not want the gospel to go forward? We want to <laughs> yeah, plant the church. We're trying to do a good thing here, God. <laughs> um, but within a few weeks, very quickly, we had assembled just through casual conversation, a Bible study or something up in toward Milwaukee. And then it was very quickly, we're like, shoot, we could potentially turn this into a core team for church plant. Yeah. And we did. Um, and so. I, I look back on that and think we were prevented for whatever reason going into Illinois. 
But up in Milwaukee, it happened very quickly and we didn't do anything different. We didn't try a new strategy or technique. It's just, why is that the case? Well, obviously God in his sovereignty wants us up there. He has his elect, in other words, living in Southern Milwaukee and desires us to reach them for the gospel and grow them in Christ. And we just recently baptized several and we're just seeing that now come up, come about, and it's very yeah. humbling. It and, is and very much exciting. So. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Next. Okay. One. Yeah, and then number five, the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. Uh, we know this from Romans eight twenty seven through twenty eight, when Paul says, "And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the heart knows." what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, so we are weak. Uh, we're particularly weak in our praying. And so one of the roles of the spirit is to help us in this. And we sometimes, I mean, if you're a Christian any length of time, you know this, but we do, we don't know what to pray, how to pray, when to pray, why to pray. And so this here is written for the purpose of comfort, especially in the context here when Christians are in the midst of suffering. Um, the father, always hears the intercession of the Spirit who is, according to this passage, perfectly praying on our behalf and according to the will of God. And he, and he can't he deny himself. God. Yeah. yeah. And, and I actually, on a personal level, that has always helped me because there are many times where I'm, and again, a, a task of a pastor, if he's really pastoring a flock, is he's oftentimes presented a, just a mess. You know, somebody comes to him and says, hey, could I meet with you? And you're like, sure, you sit down, and then they unload. And you're like, oh, my goodness. And, and now you're being called, let's, let's begin to build from the ruins. And I'll pray for people. And, and sometimes I'll just literally say, let's pray. And I don't know what to pray. I, it's, I, I, it's like all I see is wreckage. And it's like, I don't know where to begin. And But it's co a good confidence here. And so I'll literally say things like, Lord, I don't know what to ask. I don't know what to do. I know that the situation is not honoring to you. I, I'm asking for wisdom. Uh, I don't even know how best to pray for him, but I do pray that you would comfort him, direct him, blah, blah, blah. But the nice thing about behind that is I know full well that even though I'm ineptly just kind of fumbling along he knows the right. spirit spirit's yeah. doing a bang up job <laughs> and it's like okay and so let's let's just now start to figure out what we need to do but but god that the prayer has gone forth yeah um another one is the spirit of god and the word of god this is a huge one so in first corinthians 2 14 and through 16 a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And what we have here is that spirit was responsible for the giving of the word, but he's also responsible for that illuminating work of the word. Um, so we have Reformation categories, notitia, uh, or, or did we decide it was notitia? I can't I think remember. It's notitia. notitia. That, that is that we have to understand the, the facts. Um, a census, which is the agreeing or assenting to the facts, that those, uh, the fact that those facts are true. So, <laughs> so yeah. you, you can't come to faith, right? If you don't know what the gospel is, you need those facts. But then you also need to agree that 
they are true and that you're not debating that. A lot of people think they're a Christian at that point, but the third one is very important, fiducia. The, the spirit can work in the previous two, but it's this category that is completely the work of the spirit. This is where a person develops this love or hope in those facts. There's a trust in them and a delight. And that's the difference of an external Christian who can even tell you what the gospel is, but there is no love for it. There's no life-changing work of it. It's simply a work of the spirit where he illumines the, the word in such a way that we delight in and we love it and we want to do it. Right. So, yeah. so, so you can agree that 2,000 years ago, a Jew who claimed and was 100% God died on the cross and still not be saved. You have to have faith or trust in that as now the reason you're a saved person because he did something on that cross. And so it, there's, there's a love for that. And we would actually make an argument, well— I mean, this is part of my concern with paedobaptism, is that, like in the Lutheran world, they say then the Spirit it gives faith to that child, so that baby, infant, now is a believer, though they don't know anything, um, but they still need to be catechized. And there's a point where you actually go through confirmation, where they actually are asking you, do you believe these things? But really, all you can judge there is... Do they know the facts and do they agree with them? Mm -hmm. But what you can't judge is that fiducia. And that's why in the Lutheran doctrine, they also can lose their salvation because you have many who will assent to those things and then later fall away. And they say, oh, well, they lost their salvation. We would say, no, they never came to that part where the spirit then did that converting, regenerating work yes. in their heart. That's a good point. Well, same thing with getting your four-year-old to well, say, pray this prayer after Yeah. Me. I mean, Baptists are horrible at this too. Well, it's also the challenge with when we do, because we baptize younger people at our church. And so you sit down, you listen to their testimony, what they're believing in, what their hope is, and give you the gospel very well, because they're in a well-taught sure. place. And, um, but you know, but you baptize them based on the profession of faith. But you right? quiz them hard, but yes, you right. still are ultimately doing that. Um, okay, then the seventh one is the Holy Spirit gives guidance. And for this one, literally just going to read some passages. Uh, Romans 8, 1 through 9 uh, says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Do you want to read the Galatians passage? Well, yeah, real quickly, though. So the part of the point of the guidance is that the spirit is paramount to you being able to walk and obey and please God. Um, without the Spirit, you cannot please God. 
right. because you're still in the flesh, you're of the flesh. And, and that's important to grasp. And then the Galatians 5, 16 to 25 says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh. And here you should go back and listen to our do- doctrine of man, where we deal with what the flesh is, but the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorceries, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, we also walk by the Spirit. Um, And then an eighth category is the Holy Spirit is involved in church matters. And there's a few categories we can go through here. We're going to do two. Uh, The first one is leadership. Um, The Spirit sets and establishes leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what's important to understand. We think about it as just we decide these things. But really, biblically speaking, it is the Spirit who does it. In Acts 20, 28, it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In chapter 13 of Acts, verses two through four, it says, and while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Um, now this is a narrative text, so it's explaining what happened historically. Um, narrative is, and we've talked about this many times, but it's generally described from the author's viewpoint. And so it's not necessarily intended to function propositionally. And so as a result, this is why we, we can say, um, that an elder in our church has been established by the Holy Spirit. Um, as we recognize certain qualities, certain giftings, and as they sit, they learn and are examined by the elders, when elders come to a conclusion that a certain man should be formally established as an elder, we can also say then that the Spirit has has told us to set apart a qualified man for eldership. And I, we're looking at the Spirit-inspired word and say he actually fits the qualifications. Right. And that, yeah, and that's what we mean, I guess, when I say yeah. he's told but, us. but. It, just because they're qualified on those things doesn't mean they're still correct. That doesn't mean they, they got, should be. They should be an elder. <laughs> so there's that that subjective aspect. That's why, like in our church, we're very slow to do that mm-hmm. because we want to see: do they have a love for the church? Do they have a commitment to these people? Do they see them as people who need to be shepherds? Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, when a person then is sold as an elder, for instance, we would say that this is therefore the spirit's leading of the local church. Um, but it's always seen in hindsight. Yeah. Um, so this is also why, by the way, an unbiblical opposition to leadership is not good. Uh, you are, in fact, opposing not just men, but you are opposing the work of the Spirit. And that is not good, especially for your own soul, according to Hebrews 
13, 17. Yeah, and that gets lost. Uh, you know, po- shepherds get, pastors get pot shots, elders, and they shouldn't. Um, if you can't, if you're really struggling with what your elders are doing, you, you need to do first a heart check. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, if it, you really think there's something wrong, it's not necessary, and you've attempted to make changes or suggest things, and they're not being received, you probably need to go where you can submit. We've done that. We've told people, you know, you're, you, you need to go find a church where you can happily submit to elders because you're very frustrated with us, and right, right. we're not in agreement with what you're saying. Another one uh, is unity. Now, we did a whole episode on that, so check it out for a much fuller and complete version of it. But it's interesting note that uh, in verse 15, sins of the flesh involve matters related to disunity. Um, well, sorry, actually, it's, it's 15 um, of the sins of the flesh that Paul mentions. In Galatians? Um, are related to, yeah, disunity. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, Paul exhorts in Ephesians 4.3, this church is called to maintain a spirit of unity. Uh, So in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. And here's the key one. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, what's interesting is that's the hinge passage where Paul is transitioning from these indicatives of chapters 1, 2, and 3 of what we have and what God has done. They're just simple facts. Um, and all of that is a work of the Spirit. Now he's saying now walk in a manner that is worthy of what that is. And the first, very first thing he says is maintain the unity of spirit is that we've all came to Christ through that same work. Now we're not called to attain that unity of the spirit. Uh, Rather, we're commanded to maintain the unity of the spirit. And so Jesus prayed in John 17, the high priestly prayer, uh, a petition on behalf of the universal church. And he, he pr- his prayer would be that the Father would make them, meaning the church, one, just as he, Jesus, and the Father are one. And the fulfillment of this prayer would be achieved via the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We're all one in Christ, Jesus Christ by means of his Spirit. And again, this comes out in Ephesians 2, 18. For through him, meaning Christ, we have our both have our access in one spirit, literally by one spirit, to the Father. Here he's talking about the Jew and the Gentile have both been brought together by the same spirit. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's a sovereign work of the spirit achieved through the petition of Christ for his bride, which again happened in that high priestly prayer of John 17. And that's why disunity is so evil. You're actively opposing the active work of the Trinity. The Father grants request of the Son through the uniting work of the Spirit. And therefore, Paul actually gives um, a strong warning in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And this is talking actually in a plural corporate way that you as a body are the, the singular temple of God. And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. You don't mess with the church. Yeah. Uh, you treat it 
with kid gloves because it's holy. Yeah. Um, now, the unity of the Spirit is not a unity of the faith. Uh, you want to explain that? Yeah. Um, so in the passage there, in that Ephesians passage, he talks about two different kinds of unity. You have the unity of the Spirit, which you just explained is that objective work that God sovereignly does through His Spirit. I like that, objective. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're not commanded to get this. We're not commanded to attain or achieve unity. We just have that because the Spirit has done this. Um, um, but that is not the same thing as unity of the faith. And so this is a critical distinction to keep in mind. In fact, this is the reason so many are busy chasing things in the name of unity that I would say have nothing to do with the command to maintain the unity of the spirit. Um, but the whole social justice thing is that. Yeah, it really is. Um, in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, just a few verses later, he says, And he, Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to, to the building up of the body of Christ. And here it is, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, the key word here to note is this, small word, until. Um, we are to maintain that unity of the Spirit, in other words, until we achieve that unity of the faith. Real, real quickly there, um, I would argue on a micro level, you can see that happen. You can see that in individual churches, that as the, the teaching is there for long term, people come more and more into a unity. That of like-mindedness. And yeah. you'll explain what the faith is in a second. But I don't think that unity of the faith will ever occur this side of eternity because right. on the on the macro or universal church, and that's where I've actually argued that denominations are helpful yeah. because you can maintain the unity of the faith like a Nazarene and or like a Baptist or like a Presbyterian within that context, even while you have honest disagreement with brothers in Christ. Um, who hold to some other aspects of doctrine. So we're it's a way we can maintain the unity of the Spirit, even as we're growing in the unity of faith, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Back to but, the faith. Yeah, yeah, but the point understand here is that that word until applies, that implies that we do not yet have a unity right. of faith, right. which is the point you're trying to say. So as we've said here many, many times, the faith, when you have that definite article, the, the faith, it's a technical phrase in reference to that body of doctrine, that the, the truth of all things, in other words. And it's not just the gospel. Right. It's, it's all the teaching of Christ and subsequently the apostles. Um, but we have it. It's a complete body of work because Jude says it's been once for all delivered yes. to the saints. Um, and so it's, 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 but here in, in Ephesians, this, the faith, it's connected to the phrase knowledge of the son of God, um, meaning all things concerning the son. So again, that's, it's all the truth that the church possesses. And then notice when the church will have a unity of faith, it's at the fullness of Christ. Um, so the, the implication is the church will never agree on all matters related to doctrine. Oh, so yeah, um, you, you yeah, got, it, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, well, yeah, well, just to reiterate, it, it is why we'll say denominations can be a good thing, um, you know, provided it, it doesn't concern a heretical issue. Uh, this is why we will encourage people to look for a different church at times. Uh, we want them to be able to worship in a greater unity of the faith um, and 
we would argue that then therefore helps maintain the unity of the spirit. Um, we had a guy visit our church who recently has been really struggling with some social justice stuff that's being pushed at his church. And he's fearful of leaving his church because he, he's pretty high up in leadership and he's afraid that he's going to create disunity within his church if he leaves. Well, I walked him through this passage. And oh, I really? Said, and I, yeah, and I said, actually, um, you might help maintain unity of the spirit by leaving because if you're there, you're just going to create factions, you're going to create problems for a church that wants to move in a certain direction and you're in your conscience can't say I can go there. Um, you should go to a church that you can agree with on the faith and thereby maintain a unity of the spirit within your former church. So how do you receive it? Well, both him and his wife said that makes a lot of sense and they, they have to do some thinking. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's still a major move. Yeah. Well, they've been at that church for a few decades, so it's gotta be hard, but okay. you want to bring this home. Yeah, so we said a lot, obviously, um, and we could actually say more, but again, I think we've done a decent survey. Uh, there is a lot that the Spirit does within the church. It's a gift. Uh, we should never forget that this is God's church. He cares for it more than we ever will. He's always at work in ways we don't always see, uh, but a, the primary way is through His Spirit, who is very active, very present, accomplishing everything that the Son intends. Now, with that, we'll talk about something else. We haven't decided what, but we will talk about something else related to the Holy Spirit. But until then, we would ask you to continue. T tune in, join the conversation. We keep asking you, and you keep not doing this. We would love to hear from you, um, hear your thoughts with regard to things like the ministries of the Spirit. Uh, give us a five-star rating. That helps us. Leave a review over on iTunes, and also like, share, comment, rate, review on whatever is your platform of choice, but connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, tell a friend. 